This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, Mike Davis talks about L.A. in the 60s and the huge nonviolent direct action campaign for integrated housing that came before the Watts Rebellion in 1965. The defeat of that campaign in a statewide referendum in 1964 was one of the things that made the rebellion inevitable. And Ella Taylor reviews a documentary about fascism in the Philippines where the regime of President Rodrigo Duterte has killed 30,000 people in the last couple of years, claiming they were drug dealers and drug users. But first... We've been told many times that Trump won the 2016 election because his populist appeal won the white working class. They fell for his claim that he would fight for them against the heartless elites who had destroyed their jobs. Populism is the problem in this view. Populism gave us Donald Trump. It gave us the irrationality, the bigotry, and the authoritarianism of the, of the white working class. That's what we've been told, but Tom Frank says that's all wrong. He wrote the classic What's the Matter with Kansas and several other bestsellers, including The Wrecking Crew and Listen Liberal. We've talked about all of them here. And now he's got a new book out. It's a terrific one. It's called The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. We reached him today at his childhood home in Kansas. Tom Frank, welcome back. Mr. John Wiener, it's great to be here. Well, your writing is so great. I want to start by asking you to read a brief section about what you call the democracy scare that followed Trump's election. Okay, and that's, yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was a moment of hysteria among a certain kind, a certain slice of the elites that it was fear that democracy was out of control, and the word that they used to describe that sense of democracy out of control is, of course, populism. That's their word for it. Okay, so here, this is from The People Know. Sober citizens were worrying about populism at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Scholarly types were moaning about it at the annual Prague Populism Conference. High net worth individuals reviled it at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. The cool kids deplored it on the plains of Texas at South by Southwest. In the Netherlands, the Friedrich Naumann Foundation sponsored yet another convening on the subject. The proceedings were described like this. Populism has become a widespread phenomenon throughout the world. The danger of their backward-looking nostalgia for an idealized past Half-truths and fake news stories pose a threat for free and open societies. At Brigham Young University, a squad of experts on this dangerous phenomenon were ready to go even before 2016. At Stanford, the Global Populisms Project, which is co-chaired by a prominent former member of the Obama administration, declared as follows on its website. Populist parties are a threat to liberal democracy. But of course, it is true that white working class voters in the industrial Midwest, people who had once been Democrats, voted for Trump in large numbers. The pollsters call them whites without a college degree. Yes. And they preferred Trump over Clinton by almost two to one in yes. 2016. So and, the and I remember is, a guy who wrote a book about this years, even years before Trump. 
<laughs> it was called What's the Matter with Kansas? And, and why, and why the, yeah, and why, I mean, I've been writing about this my whole adult life. So the big question is, if white workers did not support Trump because they are irrational and ignorant and authoritarian, why did they do it? Well, look, Trump's bigotry played a part. I don't, uh, you know, in what I'm about to say, I don't mean to deny that. I mean, the guy is, the guy's bigotry is in your face. It's loathsome. It seems to get worse as the years go by instead of better. But he also, in 2016, picked up on all kinds of uh, working class issues that the Democrats had uh, had ignored and had, you know, the Democrats treated uh, working class voters of whatever racial background, treated them as a captured constituency for many years. And, you know, if you paid attention to if you, you know, talk to people in labor unions or, you know, listen to AFL-CIO stuff, they were furious about it. They still are. Uh, they get treated like uh, like they don't matter by the Democratic Party. They're taken for granted. And Trump, you know, whether it's just accidental or he planned it this way, was able to reach out with, you know, when he talked about trade, when he talked about the endless wars, uh, you go on down the list, when he, he would attack Wall Street all the time and uh, link his opponent, Hillary Clinton, to Wall Street, he was he was saying things that resonated for these people. And uh, this is the important point. It, these were not necessarily irrational. Now, as we all know, Trump was Trump was full of shit. If you study these issues, you can see that the guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. And of course, as president, he did <laughs> he delivered disaster, you know, for these people. It, it has not been great for these people. But if you're just judging by what he was saying on the campaign trail, yeah, there's a certain rationality for it. Well, when I was in college, we were taught that the populist party of the 1890s was the source of this original irrational and reactionary kind of politics that was fearful of social change. The populace of the 1890s had an affliction called status anxiety, <laughs> we were taught. Yes, yes. Uh, and this was the work of one of the great, America's greatest historians, Richard Hofstetter, uh, liberal. He later admitted late in his life that he had distorted the evidence radically uh, and that he had been preoccupied with a frightening political phenomenon in his own world, McCarthyism. But tell us how the great Richard Hofstetter got it so wrong. Ooh, very famous book published in 1955 called The Age of Reform, where he uh, talked about the Populist Party, which had uh, historians had always treated as a predecessor of welfare state liberalism, or a harbinger, I should say, a forerunner of welfare state liberalism, because that's where the evidence obviously points you. If you look at what the populace wanted to do and what they stood for and what they demanded and what they, you know, that's what it was. But Hofstadter was looking for, you know, in the 1950s, as you mentioned, there's a huge fear among intellectuals of McCarthyism. It's also after World War II. And uh, intellectuals in America and elsewhere in the world were obsessed with the problem of fascism. Where had it come from? How had uh, Hitler, you know, conned the German people into supporting him? And uh, uh, Hofstadter just seems to have decided to trace these things to populism and to have made of the word populism. By the way, a word that was coined by this political party in Kansas in the 1890s, so about 20 miles from where I'm sitting, was where the word was 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 consciously invented by a bunch of people. Hofstadter decided to take that word and to redefine it 
as sort of the symptom of working class mo- of mass working class movements. Now, other American historians dogpiled on him in the most incredible way and really destroyed the uh his interpretation of the populist party. And they did this very quickly. I'd say within within 5 or 10 years after his his uh, magnum opus was published. Why did he do it? And this is this is a really interesting question because what you discover when you go back and read uh, the Age of Reform, his attack on populism, is that it's it's a work of history, but it's also, and John, you know this, all history is to some degree presentist. It's about the present. His book about the about the populists was also a manifesto for his generation of intellectuals who were then sort of coming up and coming into power in an unprecedented unprecedented way for intellectuals. They were taking over the, not only the universities, but the great corporations. You know, guys with MBAs were suddenly running them instead of people who had uh, inherited them or built them up or, you know, whatever. And uh, intellectuals were running the departments in Washington. Intellectuals were running the Pentagon. Famously, Robert McNamara, the, whole, the managerial style was in the ascendance. And Hofstadter, along with a bunch of other, what they used to call consensus intellectuals, and I know you remember these guys, <laughs> Daniel Bell, you know, Seymour Lipset, there's a whole bunch of them. They were uh, basically writing manifestos for their generation and why they deserved to rule, why it was right and just and correct for this to be happening in the 1950s. And they all of them settled on, well, following Hofstadter, they settled on, this word to describe what they were displacing, the model for democracy that, that their vision of managerial technocracy was replacing. They called it populism. Populism was the opposite of them. Populism was mass movements in the street. Populism was you know, millions of working class people uh, demanding something or another, whether it's through the People's Party in the 1890s or the labor movement in the 1930s. And that form of Politics basically was obsolete, Hofstadter was saying, and Daniel Bell was saying, and they were all saying. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. You say that the Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota in the 30s was the apostolic successor to the old People's Party of the 1890s, and you say we should all learn about Floyd B. Olson, governor <laughs> yes. of Minnesota. Yes, I elected do. Elected <laughs> in 1930. Tell us about Floyd B. Olson. Uh, Floyd Olson was this amazing personality, uh, you know, magnetic uh, personality, amazing radio speaker, and was a, a elected governor of Minneapolis, of Minnesota, sorry, governor of Minnesota in the 30s. Uh, and was uh, said openly, I'm not, you know, I'm not a liberal, I'm a radical, and proposed uh, extremely radical measures for the time, a moratorium on, on uh, foreclosures, uh, you know, all a sort of local version of, of Social Security, all these sorts of things. And uh, yes, came out, he was had been a member of the IWW at one time. And I like to go back to people like Floyd Olson, who are so obviously in the populist tradition, because they contradict the way we use the word uh, nowadays, just really bluntly. And so the, the book is made up with of anecdotes like the story of Floyd Olson, John. It's a, a whole bunch of different characters and figures like that, including Franklin Roosevelt, including Martin Luther King, including Bayard Rustin, including all sorts of heroes uh, of of the left and of liberalism who are clearly part of the populist tradition, but who 
don't fit when our modern day pundits, you know, use it as a word to denote um, racist authoritarianism. You know, that's clearly not what Floyd Olson was. I want to get back to the Trump phenomenon. You have suggested that that uh, it was not irrational or crazy for white working class people in the industrial Midwest to to believe that Hillary Clinton had ties to Wall Street. Well, that was obviously true. (laughs) That was clearly correct. Look, you and I have been around politics for a long time, and we know that that that's not really an accurate way of understanding Hillary Clinton's politics. But it was pretty damning if you don't if you if you don't know a whole lot about it and you haven't followed it all your life. That's pretty bad. And also, everybody, remember, was furious about the Wall Street bailouts. Absolutely furious. And Trump was he was fairly good at capturing that anger, speaking to that anger. Let's talk about 2020 now. Joe Biden is from Scranton, a white working class place. He didn't come out of Yale Law School or the University of Chicago like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Is Joe Biden going to turn the Democrats away from the anti-populism they have been engaged in since the Clinton New Democrat era? Is Joe Biden going to embrace his roots in Scranton? Is Joe Biden going to expose Trump as as a phony populist and he claimed the ground of him being the real the real oh spokesman God. of the I, white workers. Uh, okay that last part no I don't I don't think he'll go that far. But it's you 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 put your finger on something there that your audience is going to be really interested in and that is that the Democrats have become an anti-populist party and they have become Richard Hofstadter's ideal of managerial government. That's really who they are. Even though the Democratic Party itself came from, you know, Roosevelt, etc., William Jennings Bryan came from this very populist place. That's how they became who they are. And but they have they've turned their backs on that. And unfortunately, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton before that really embodied that shift. Although, remember, Bill Clinton had a certain sort of folksy way that was very, you know, winning. Uh, but once he got into power, of course, it's all just, you know, more power to the technocrats. Get some guys in here from Yale Law School. They'll fix it. And uh, Biden, you know, at least does not have that sort of cultural baggage. There, I mean, there's one thing you can say for sure about Biden, and that is he will never call Trump supporters deplorables. He will never write off a big part of the American population in that way. And you remember that really was that really hurt Hillary when she said that. By the way, she backed off of it, but the American right away because she realized what a mistake that was. But the American, you know, pundit core said, "No, that's exactly what they are. We live in a country of where we just we basically can't uh, stand democracy anymore because democracy means rule by these people who have no business telling us what to do." Uh, Biden will never make that mistake. And you have some striking um, quotes from an interview of. Joe Biden did uh, with the New York Times where he recalls being told by a Hillary Clinton operative during the 2016 campaign that he should make a distinction between progressive values and working class values. The thing about Biden is 90 percent of his public statements are just, you know, the usual politician crap you know they're just they're nothing but if you pay really close attention to him every now and then he will slip into something that's kind of profound 
where he really does like these people, the you know the the white working class people, and he says in this interview with the New York Times, and it's a really long interview, and I had to read the whole thing. It's a, he says this at the very end. They must have been going for two hours or something, and it's with the New York Times editorial board, uh, and he basically antagonizes the editorial board. He says, you know, it's a, you think it's all about smart people like you, but I'm here to tell you that these. White working class people who Democrats think are so, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and unreliable are actually in many ways much more progressive than you, meaning the New York Times editorial board on economic issues. And I thought that was kind of awesome of Biden to say that. You know, there are people who I admire who think Biden is a really great guy. I, I'm, I, I'm not now starting to sound like a Biden partisan. And I, just so you know, I'm not. I voted for Bernie in the primary. I am not a Biden supporter by any stretch. I thought he was the worst candidate up there on the stage. But Bernie really likes him. And you have to, you know, you have to wonder why. What's the reason for that? Okay, so Joe Biden understands the problem of the Democrats abandoning the, their working class base. But isn't isn't he, all this talk about the working class just an act? Isn't he really just another Clintonian tool of the Wall Street Silicon Valley Democrats? That would be his entire career trajectory that you've just described. What he actually did in in terms of legislation is is dreadful. I mean, Wall Street has no better friend than Joe Biden. Uh, the 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 notorious bankruptcy bill that passed when George Bush was president that was largely his work. You know, the, the various trade agreements, he voted for them. You know, the really bad ones. He defended them when he was Obama's VP. And the, the one that really gets me is mass incarceration. This is a crime that the Democrats really have, have to answer for and really have not yet atoned for or explained or made their peace with. Uh, and, uh, passing these laws when, uh, Reagan and Clinton were president that basically put a whole generation of black kids in prison. And Biden is, Probably the Democrat most, after Bill Clinton, most responsible for those laws. What's funny is, as far as I can tell, the, the, you know, the woke media has yet to make him answer for anything. But do you think that all this is, is changing now? Do you think the current economic collapse is, is going to bring about the end of the Wall Street anti-populist theme of uh, democratic politics is joe biden going to herald in a new era of of liberal politics Mm. some people think so but i don't um i i I would like to think so i wish i thought that i wish i was i believed that but i don't and one of the reasons i don't is because the uh anti-populism as i describe it has is is everywhere you look in the american in the american media now and center-left types uh, have really turned against uh, the idea of mass social movements, you know, the idea of working class movements to bring about economic, you know, economic reform. That idea has become in a very short amount of time. I mean, it was just last year when every candidate on the stage was trying to sound like Bernie Sanders. And now here we are. <laughs> that stuff is is so far gone. And so I don't see any uh, any any pressure on Biden to move back towards it. Now, that said, I think Trump is done for. I don't see how you get how you bungle a pandemic like he has done and get reelected. I don't see how you get 15 percent unemployment and get reelected. This is a disaster. And uh, I, you know, there's unless he unless he comes up with some new way to uh, 
you know, uh, disenfranchise huge numbers of people. I don't see I don't see how he gets reelected. One last thing, your title, the people know that comes from uh, a specific place. The people. Yes. Who was it who wrote the people? Yes. Uh, Carl Sandburg, uh, one of the great sons of Illinois. And uh, a truly great uh, writer in the early part of the 20th century who wrote a book-length poem in the 30s called The People, Yes. It was one of the sort of – the 1930s were a period of just overwhelming cultural populism, faith in the com- – what they used to say, the common man, you know. And uh, you see that in the movies, you see it in the politics, and you see it in the literature. And Carl Sandburg is sort of one of the I- – I-, I love that guy, one of the great figures of that of that period. Tom Frank, his terrific new book is The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Tom, congrats on this book. It's always great to have you on the show. John, it's my pleasure to be here. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time again for Virus Time TV, Ella Taylor's ideas about what to watch this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Hello, John. Pleasure to be here. Well, this week, I understand you've been watching a documentary about the Trump-like leader of the Philippines and his attacks on the press there. It's a documentary called A Thousand Cuts, and it's on PBS Frontline. Tell us about A Thousand Cuts. Well, if it's at all possible, he's worse than Trump, if such a thing can be imagined, um, but probably no more intelligent. So there seems to be a whole new, very much needed subgenre of documentaries that are chronicling, you know, from various points of view, the erosion of, of democratic institutions. The title of this movie has a kind of a double meaning. One type of a thousand cuts is refers to the 30,000 30, uh, Filipinos who have been killed by uh, Rodrigo Duterte's goons in the name of a war on drugs just in the last few years. And the other is the chipping away at the institutions of, of democracy. And the case in point here is uh, Duterte's war on the media, in fact, on anybody who criticizes him. It's directed by Ramona S. Diaz, who is a Filipina, and she also made a wonderful documentary about Imelda Marcos called Imelda. And uh, Imelda Marcos took out a restraining order on Diaz for this wonderful, I've seen the movie and it was just wonderful. And when she went to the Philippines to appear in court, she met a woman named uh, Maria Ressa, who is this wonderful, wonderful woman who is a co-founder of Rapla, which is a website, a Filipino website that is sort of bravely battling on uh, with criticisms of the Duterte Duterte regime. 
And this is a story of really what happened to her for persisting with this site. She's a marvelous 56-year-old imp with a, and a Princeton grad graduate um, who was also became a time person of the year. She's very she's tiny and very scrappy and very determined, but also always upbeat um, and good humored and puckish, which given the fact that she has been arrested twice and is now sentenced to up to six years in prison for cyber libel, which is a category that Duterte made up, is unbelievably unflappable. She also appears to completely lack the fear gene. And this is a, a film that was made almost entirely by women and focuses on the women at Rappler. They're all understandably freaking out about what faces them because uh, Duterte talks about killing in almost every public sentence that he utters and he is as good as his word, unfortunately. She seems to be serenely unaffected by this. And so she goes in and out of the Philippines, courting arrest every single time. She's usually met at the airport when she returns by his goons. And uh, so far as we can tell, she just is not afraid. She's one of these extraordinary people who just keeps on and on and on without being afraid. And uh, she's actually now teach. she posted bail um, on this latest arrest. And she was convicted in, a, you know, one of these kangaroo courts that he has set up and is now teaching in, in Singapore. Uh, it's a wonderfully involving documentary about the ups and downs of her struggle with Duterte that contains a number of interviews with him. He's just appalling in every way. I had not followed the news from the Philippines. The, the footage in A Thousand Cuts of President Duterte promising to eliminate the country's drug problem by killing all dealers and not just killing all dealers, killing all users. This was his campaign, a war on drugs, literally. Uh, and he's actually, as you say, done it, killed 30,000 people. Mm -hmm. And then it's only sort of a secondary factor is the media that took him to task for this. He's turned on them. And the documentary has footage of, his, of him openly saying, just because you're a member of the press doesn't mean you're invulnerable to assassination. This is so far beyond Trump, it's truly terrifying. Yes, and he, I, I agree. And, and he has a, surrounded himself with advisors who are not only uniquely unqualified for their jobs, but they're mostly entertainers and former dancers who seem to have a, a distinctive authoritarian streak that suits him. His, his chief goon, if, if you like, is a guy who does dances in front of the audience and knows how to warm them up and is also a, a great threatener as well. It's really quite terrifying. And the, the thousand cuts in, in the title, I think specifically refers to the fact that this killing of democracy in the Philippines didn't occur through a military coup or martial law. This, the thousand cuts are the courts that have stopped enforcing the law, the police officials who go along with this, even though it's illegal, and the rest of the media, which has censored itself. The, the, the thousand little ways that people 
in power except the institutions of fascism. That makes it especially, you know, of concern, let us say, to us. I think so. And when we did, after we discussed the Brazilian case from the edge of democracy last week, I got a message from somebody on, on, tw on Twitter, I think it was, or Facebook, reminding me that uh, the president of Brazil was democratically elected and therefore he's not a dictator. Well, if you look around the world just now, virtually all the dictators were democratically elected, whatever that means. Yeah. In the age of media and social media, and so on, democratically elected takes on a whole new meaning. And that's what we're facing here, certainly in November, with all the shenanigans going on, trying to undermine that. In, in Manila, it's, and in the Philippines in general, it's a fait accompli because the rest of the media, as you point out, are so far in the pocket of Duterte that they actually publicly condemned Rappler and Maria Ressa. Ressa. So that little project is pretty much on its own. So if we want to recover from the experience of watching the rise of fascism in the Philippines, what can you prescribe? Well, I have a lovely little, also a new subgenre, the brainy female-driven romance um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> for you. It's a, a movie called Around the Sun, uh, and I'll explain that uh, in a minute. It's directed by the British-Greek director Oliver Crimpus, and written by Jonathan Kiefer and full disclosure, he used to be used to edit my work at Fandor. Uh, many years ago in a very different capacity. This, and for both of them, this is a debut feature. It stars Cara Theobald, who um, Downton Abbey fans, of which I am not one, but I watched it anyway. She played Ivy on Downton Abbey and Gethin and Anthony, who's in Game of Thrones, which I've never seen and am unlikely to. And it's kind of a girl meets boy story in a French chateau in Normandy. They're both British, but this is a very French film in so many ways. A gorgeous French chateau in Normandy. But the trick of the movie, the conceit, is that they meet several times for the first time. Only they're spanning four centuries. And the earth doesn't move so much as shift on its axis because she is a science nerd who is completely uh, enchanted by the French philosopher Bernard de Fontenelle, who uh, wrote a popular science book in the 17th century about uh, the cosmology, and he was one of the first to observe that the Earth moves around the sun, hence the title of the movie. And she talks beautifully about the relevance, the philosophical relevance for that concept of plural realities. So every time uh, it shifts in time and, and not in space. I mean, it's essentially a two-hander in this French chateau with a small house, adjoining house. Uh, we learn a little bit more about the two. Um, and I don't want to give away the many differences in their relationship that are revealed over time. He's a kind of lost soul who seems a bit feckless at first, but she's a very flirty type. Um, but uh, it's a very meta movie in the sense that um, 
we we get revelations from all these different time zones uh, that so much of of what we think of as real or desirable depends on how you're looking and where from. Um, it's a matter of of perception. That, um, reality can be seen as very fragile in that re in that regard. But also uh, something that he in particular needs to learn, which is that the world does not revolve around us. The writing, uh, Jonathan Kiefer's writing, is very lovely. I mean, it's very complex, and this is definitely a cerebral. It's many tones are lyrical, romantic. Um, brainy, sensitive, wistful, and hopeful, but it's not a um, pandering movie at all. It doesn't the the gentle score doesn't cue your emotions uh, in any way. It's just there as a kind of uh, low key backdrop, and the movie's many su subtle tonal shifts are really both delightful and somehow kind of nourishing is the way I would put it. So it's it's really a lovely movie. So we've been talking here about A Thousand Cuts, the documentary about the rise of fascism in the Philippines. That's on PBS Frontline. And Around the Sun, the feature film about two Brits in a French chateau. That's on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. I just want to add that um, that will be for a fairly short time because it's some kind of a special um, release. So if, if this piques your interest, I would say go for it now. <laughs> Ella Taylor. Ella, thanks as always. Thank you. It was fun. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now we want to talk about L.A. in the 60s. And so we turn again to Mike Davis, activist and writer, author of the classic history of L.A., City of Quartz. His new book, Out Now, is called Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, and it's our featured thank you gift this hour of the KPFK Summer Fun Drive. Mike was in a conversation with Megan Day at an online event sponsored by DSA of Los Angeles. She asked Mike about the nonviolent direct action campaigns for civil rights in Los Angeles that came before the Watts Rebellion in 1965, especially the Campaign for Integrated Housing. Well, the group that was key in the early 60s was the Congress of Racial Quality Corps, which I joined in San Diego when I was 16 years old. Corps had come to L.A. in the early 50s and had brief periods of, of activism. But it was really the, the lunch counter sit-ins in the South and the, this explosion of black student militancy across the South that stimulated a new civil rights movement in Los Angeles. Los Angeles provided, by the way, the second largest uh, group of freedom riders in 1961 and 1962, many of whom came back and became uh, even more militant core activists. Now, 1963 was the year of the Battle of Birmingham. This was the largest and in some ways the most important, even more than Selma or voting rights in Mississippi, this is the largest attempt to overthrow, just to friendly overthrow Jim Crow in the South. 
demanding jobs, integrated education, in, integration of public space, and eventually political power. It was an extraordinary struggle, both because of the violence it's faced, including the bombing of uh, the church and the murder of uh, four little girls, but also because it was tactically innovative in, in ways that were very controversial in those days. After young adults had failed to be able to stay in the streets, they were arrested by the hundreds, carved off, beaten, morale was declining. The Birmingham movement put kids in the streets, high school kids, junior high school kids, even grade school kids, and they were astonishingly brave and added a whole new dimension to the struggle and created a kind of glamour about the possibilities uh, that existed. And this is kind of an important point because in our book, one of our major assertions is about the centrality of high school and even junior high school struggles in the late 60s in, in the city. CORE was engaged in 1963 in a big campaign to integrate the suburbs. Blacks could not live in the suburbs, period. 99% of the subdivisions, supposed four subdivisions in Los Angeles County were close to African-Americans who were looking for homes, trying to escape the acute housing crisis and overcrowding crisis in South Central LA. And this campaign eventually focused on the city of Torrance. It was an absolutely fascinating campaign. This is where Marlon Brando walked in a picket line for the first time. And CORE kept up the battle despite hundreds of arrests, lawsuits, brought many Hollywood people out of the woodwork to protest. And it was on the momentum of CORE's open housing campaign that an alliance of black churches, the NAACP, even the Urban League, usually cautious and conservative, came together with CORE in the United Civil Rights Movement. And they announced that they were wanted a Birmingham-type solution across the board. They wanted progress in black employment, school integration, open housing, and some kind of real civilian oversight of the LAPD and end to police brutality. And they staged an extraordinary summit meeting with LA's elites, with you know Chandler of the LA Times, with all the major West Side bankers and home and loan owners, people from the aerospace industry. They were supported by the United Auto Workers. And in a move that was really unique in the civil rights history of this period, the ACLU acted not only as legal advisors to the struggle, they became a core part of this coalition. So they met fruitlessly for months with the city elites, got a lot of vague promises, ended up with a big fight, a very, very bitter fight with the Board of Education about integrating high schools. And at the end of the day, they were betrayed, they were uh, defeated, more conservative black groups bolted from it. And all this against the background of a rising wave of political racism in California. And one of its uh, centers was in the industrial communities east of Alameda. All white working class communities where the CIO had been a huge presence in the 1940s and actually tried to integrate. But there was a major backlash building and it would eventually repeal in the former Proposition 14, the California Open Housing Law that was recently passed, 
This is one of the things, two thirds of the white voters in California rejected housing integration. This was one of the three or four key factors in making the Watts Rebellion an inevitability. Of course, that's Mike Davis, co-author of the new book, Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s. Many of the issues and themes and problems and challenges of the 60s remain at the center of our lives today. And of course, the LAPD and its abuse of black lives is the center of what we're about today. Turns out it was also a key issue, maybe the key issue of the LA movements of the 60s. Mike was asked about the origins of the modern LAPD. Turns out it was the work of one man, William Parker, Bill Parker, chief of the LAPD in the 50s and the 60s. Let's listen to Mike Davis. Parker joined the LAPD in 1927, and he soon got a law degree. And during the 1930s, he played a crucial role inside the police union, the Fire and Police Protective League. First of all, in crafting an amendment to to the charter of the city of Los Angeles. And this charter amendment provided, in the name of fighting uh, boss control over the city, provided that the LAPD itself would be exclusively responsible for investigating the LAPD. In other words, it made the LAPD almost completely autonomous of city government. In 1937, he drew up another uh, amendment, which gave essentially life tenure to chiefs of of police, something he would take advantage of uh, for more than 30 years. During the Second World War, Parker rose rapidly in the ranks of military police and ended up being responsible for the policing plan to accompany uh, D-Day and the invasion of France. And so he gained wide experience for several years in administering martial law, which of course became his favorite mode of, of, of policing, unrestricted by uh, police commissions or ethical committees and, and the like. He's usually described as having been the one who cleaned out the argument the stables of the LAPD. But in fact, that was a, a different police chief who was brought in for a single year, William Wharton, who uh, was a major general in the Marine Corps and also a famous spy. He'd been in charge of espionage in Japan. And as Warden was weeding out the bad apples in 1949, he turned to Marine veterans as uh, a source of honest cops. And he transformed the police academy into a kind of miniature Paris Island. And that Marine-like mold has stuck to the LAPD to this very day. Parker, on Orton's recommendation, became chief in 1950. He had two extraordinary skills. He was, on one hand, a master extortionist and blackmailer. And secondly, he was an unparalleled publicist for himself. On the blackmail side, the LAPD during the 20s and 30s, when it had been the arm wing of the open shop in Los Angeles, had, of course, a red squad, which tapped phones and accumulated a huge archive of, of, of stuff, uh, not just on the left, but on the city politicians. 
Parker had experience with that, he continued to enlarge uh, the archive until it was second only to uh, the Black Book in J. Edgar Hoover's office. Hoover and Parker, by the way, were enemies and uh, lifelong uh, rivals. And he used this spy information, this intelligence, from wiretapping everybody's phone and having uh, planted uh, police spies in different bodies to drive several uh, leading liberals out of politics. Uh, in one case, was Stanley Mosk, who was the liberal uh, state attorney general under uh, in the first term of, uh, of the Brown administration, the Edmund Brown administration. Mosk thought that Parker had to be reined in, that he was nothing but a wild enemy of, of civil rights. But Parker blackmailed him, and uh, Mosk was forced to quit a campaign for the Senate. And there are many examples of that. And these secret files uh, did not disappear on Parker's death in 1966. They continued to be one of the primary uh, weapons used by the elite in the LAPD. Secondly, as a publicist, my God, he had 20 cops simply devoted to public relations. And this mainly meant working with the newspapers and with Hollywood. And when Dragnet came out, he immediately realized that this program could become an incredible mouthpiece for the police and its view of the city. And that's the reason, the inception of the just astonishing number of television programs and movies that have lionized the LAPD. In some, the police culture he created was militarized. He took the cops off the street, put them in cars, but he saw as one of his prime functions, more important than arresting Mickey Cohen or driving the mob off the Sunset Strip, was policing segregation in a way helping to create segregation, enforce it in Los Angeles. He ordered his cops to stop, frisk, and, and many times arrest any African-American after dark on the west side of L.A. or in Hollywood. He conducted an incredible incredible years-long war against biracial entertainment helped to destroy the integrated rhythm and blues scene and jazz scene on Central Avenue. Dolphins of Hollywood was a famous black record store, which had many white customers. He put a cop outside of Dolphins for months to uh, turn away people. And back in the, you know, the 60s, I think it was pretty clear to all of us that the problem was not Parker himself but this machine, this kind of Leviathan that he created and then proceeded to hand down through the next four or five successors. Mike Davis on the origins of the modern LAPD, central drama of the book we're featuring this hour of the KPFK Summer Fun Drive, Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. 
Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.